Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Charles Goodman, translator of the Tatvasangraha of Shantarakshita, Selected Metaphysical Chapters, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Charles. Thanks for having me on, Malcolm. Well, glad to have you. Let's dive right in. So your book is a translation of sections of a text written by a Buddhist philosopher. Um, Two Buddhist philosophers will talk about the who, who they are in a moment, and it's focusing on metaphysics. So let's just start with the big picture for our listeners. What is the Tatvasangraha, and why did you think it was important to translate this book into to English, and, and maybe why now, if there's a particular reason for now? So as you've already suggested, this text has a little bit of a complex structure. The Tatvasangraha, strictly and narrowly speaking, is a philosophical poem. Uh, by an 8th century author, Shantarakshita. And this is in many ways um, one of the last major works of Buddhist philosophy in India. There is some material later than Tattvasamgraha, which is extremely complex and scholastic uh, and somewhat more obscure. Tattvasamgraha is a text that received a lot of attention from scholars around the world, in in Europe and Japan, as well as in the United States in recent years. And it's a text that can draw on the entire history, more than a thousand years of history of Buddhist philosophy in India up to that time. It also engages very deeply um, and in many cases based on an accurate understanding with a number of other Indian philosophies of the time. One way to try to think about what Tattvasangraha is, is that it's like a Buddhist debater's manual. It tells you, here are the philosophical positions that are out there on our intellectual scene. Here are some of the arguments for them. Here are responses you can use to try to critique those arguments. Here are arguments you can use to defend our position and and advance our intellectual agenda um, in the context of a conversation with an advocate of this other philosophy. And that conversation might be an informal conversation, but it seems that Chantarakshita envisages that this text will be used for public formal debates with a variety of strict rules that need to be followed. And he's often discussing how the ideas fit into those rules of formal debate. Now, along with uh, Tattvasamgraha, we have a canonical commentary, the Tattvasamgraha Panjika. One reason why it's thought of as canonical is that it was written by uh, Shantarakshita's student, Kamalashila. Okay, so Shantarakshita's dates are usually given as around 725 to 788 CE. Kamalashila as 740 to 795 CE. So these people knew each other, they worked together. And so we have some reason to assume that at least most of the time, Kamalashila knows what Shantarakshita's view is and is probably trying to faithfully explicate it. And without the commentary, the verses are so terse and cryptic, as usual in Indian philosophy, that they would be rather difficult to interpret. So One reason why people in general might be interested in this text 
is that both Shantarakshita and Kalmashila played a very important role in the formation of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So these are important figures in the history of religion. They're also remarkably philosophically sophisticated on a number of levels. Um, and they uh, are also giving us priceless information about the intellectual history of the context in which they appear. Uh, one famous example of this is that this is the first Buddhist text we know of that explicitly mentions something called Advaita Darshana, the view of Advaita or non-duality, which eventually becomes the dominant form of Hindu philosophy. So it's it's got a number of angles where it would be interesting to people philosophically, intellectual history, uh, religion, history. So there's just there's a lot lot going on in this text. It sounds like. So why did you pick the um, the metaphysics sections to focus on? So. The sole chapter of Tattvasamgraha is very famous. Disagreements about the existence or non-existence of the soul um, are central to debates between Buddhists and then non-Buddhist philosophers, mo mostly people who retrospectively we would classify as some kind of Hindus. Uh, but Jains are also very relevant, and Jain philosophies are actually discussed and critiqued in some of the selections that I translate for the book. Uh, this is really the central focus of, you might even say, Indian philosophy as a whole. Certainly, the debates between Buddhists and non-Buddhists center around this issue. And so Buddhists are forced to engage with a number of questions, which we would today classify as pertaining to the philosophy of personal identity. And since they don't believe in a soul, they have to worry about the kinds of questions that you would face if you wanted to defend a reductionist view like Derek Parfit or going back to David Hume. So I was working already on the soul chapter, the seventh chapter, uh, when I first went to India in 2007 uh, to study at what's now called the Central University of Tibetan Studies. Um, and I had the help of some very impressive scholars there to try to engage with and, and attempt to understand this text. But at the time, my knowledge of the Sanskrit language and of Buddhist philosophy wasn't quite at the level it needed to be to understand the whole text. I was able to understand 95% of it, but that's not enough to produce a publishable translation. So I set the text aside and worked on my second book, which is a translation of another text from about the same time, the training anthology of Shantideva. And then a student from China, Wendy Fan, um, emailed me and said that she had money from the Chinese government to come and study. And she wanted to read the karma chapter of Tattva Samgraha with me. So I thought that that might not be very philosophically interesting. I thought that it was going to perhaps be about the uh, Buddhist mythology and the, the traditional uh, worldview of the different realms that you can be reborn in and all of this. But I agreed uh, because I thought her proposal was intriguing and it was a great opportunity to uh, help her learn more Sanskrit. And then the karma chapter turned out to be fascinating. And it turned out to be far more philosophically sophisticated than I, than I expected. It ends up being mostly about the question of causation and whether Buddhists can give a defensible account of what causation consists in and how we know about it. So once I realized the, the very considerable interest of that chapter, I started to return then to other parts of Tattva Samgraha. And I realized that I could put together a volume 
that included consideration of several different related metaphysical issues. There's a lot of material in Tattvasamgraha about philosophy of language, which is very, very difficult. There are a number of scholarly debates about how that material should be interpreted. Um, and I decided not to engage with that. Large sections of the text are about epistemology. Um, and those, materi those materials are of great interest as well. Um, so I decided to carve out some chapters that were focused on metaphysical issues. Certainly they engage with epistemological issues. They engage with philosophy of language. None of these things can be cleanly separated. Uh, but I thought that there was some thematic unity uh, to the chapters that I chose. But I end up jumping around quite a bit in the text. So I translate most of chapter one, all of chapter two, various all the various sections of chapter seven, chapter nine, and chapter 20. Um, and so my uh, table of contents does look a little bit odd uh, because I was going for um, a thematic unity rather than to translate consecutive passages in the text. Mm -hmm. Good. So we'll get back to the structure of the text, the language you're translating from or languages sometimes. Um, but let's back up and talk to you a little bit about how you came to be interested in uh, Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist metaphysics more specifically. You gave us a little bit about how you got into this text, but what about Buddhist philosophy in general? Yes. So one place to start that story is that my father and his sister, my aunt, have been practicing Buddhism very seriously, but mostly outside of an institutional context ever since the late 60s. And so uh, I then, um, while in college, became interested in Buddhist meditation. Um, my aunt taught me how to do this meditation, and I found it to be very helpful. And so being the kind of person that I was at the time, as soon as I got back, uh, to college from the summer where I was practicing meditation, I started to take uh, the Sanskrit language uh, with Stephanie Jameson, who was at Harvard at that time, now at UCLA. Uh, she was a wonderful teacher, and I found the language extraordinarily intriguing, quite difficult, but, but it has a kind of beautiful quasi-mathematical structure. Um, Sanskrit is wonderful because there's an enormous amount of information encoded in the grammar itself. And so once you know what the grammar means, um, you can actually arrive at a very, very precise understanding often of what the text is meant. If the author wishes to do so, Sanskrit can also have quite a bit of ambiguity like any natural language, but it allows you to be very clear and precise if you want to be. And so it's a wonderful language, I think, to write philosophy in. Um, and so then I decided to pursue philosophy as a career uh, but I had originally intended to uh, study analytic metaphysics. Um, I then, uh, with the advice of P.J. Ivanhoe and Luis Gomez, uh, I decided to combine my interests um, into a uh, career working on Asian philosophy. All right. Well, let's dive into the Asian philosophy then. So we have... Um... Some ground clearing, I think, to, to do for our listeners to make sure that they have an awareness of what's going on in Buddhist metaphysics. You've talked a little bit about the soul and, and things like that. Um, I also want to, in our time today, talk a little bit about translation and um, the challenges maybe of translating philosophical Sanskrit. Um, and also, I think Tibetan is involved here. So maybe let's start there. What are the languages that this text is written in? Um, and how did you go about translating these texts for a, I guess I would say a philosophical audience, but an audience who I take it, you're not expecting them to be um, experts in Sanskrit philosophy. So maybe talk a little bit about your, um, your translation style. Yes. Thank you. So 
the text is preserved in Sanskrit and also in Tibetan translations. Many Buddhist texts are preserved in translations into other languages, Chinese, Central Asian languages. And in this instance, however, we don't have uh, Chinese translations of the Tathasamgraha. So it's the Sanskrit and the Tibetan. There are several different Tibetan versions, which are quite similar to each other, uh, but which do have some divergences. Now, and we have Sanskrit manuscripts in some cases that were preserved in Jain monastery libraries. So uh, the... Buddhist tradition in India doesn't survive. Uh, it, it mostly dies out in the 12th century. Uh, but the Jains preserved some manuscripts um, of uh, Buddhist texts. Um, and that's partly why we have the Sanskrit. But then we have these Tibetan translations. And having the Tibetan is enormously helpful. So the Tibetan translators worked closely with Indian pundits. And they worked out a very... Uh, systematic, very rigorous um, style of translation, which is relentlessly literal. And so on the one hand, they then confronted their successors with some very difficult problems about how to interpret this material. Um, and so Buddhist monks in Tibet spend hundreds of years then trying to figure out what these literal translations mean. They actually created grammatical structures in classical Tibetan that did not exist in their colloquial language solely to use them to be able to translate Sanskrit texts more literally. Okay. So this approach had disadvantages for later generations of Tibetans, but the great advantage it has for us is that it's often possible to actually reconstruct with fair accuracy, if you have the Tibetan, what the Sanskrit would have looked like. And so there's a lot to be learned then by comparing Tibetan translations um, with Sanskrit originals and also talking to people who are educated in the Tibetan tradition um, who can help interpret uh, what the Tibetan means. So comparing the Tibetan with the Sanskrit editions of the text was a major way in which I tried to uh, both uh, understand as well as possible what the original text might have looked like and also be faithful to the, uh, the meaning of the text as best that we can understand it. Now, when we translate these texts, there are a number of different approaches that are possible. So I think that the most important goals in translating a text like this have to do with making it speak to contemporary philosophers. And thus, I've tried to remain faithful to the text while making it read as much as possible like the way that we would express similar ideas in contemporary American philosophical English. Thus, I've chosen to use technical terms that uh, to the extent possible, are similar to the ones that would be used by analytic philosophers in expressing similar ideas. Uh, and I've tried to make the text readable, even when that requires using somewhat different grammatical structures. So one very simple example is that Sanskrit absolutely loves passive voice. Uh, we find passive voice um, more common, arguably, than active voice in philosophical texts. Uh, so... I've systematically transformed passive into active voice uh, pretty much throughout the work in, in all but a few cases. Uh, and there are many other instances in which I think mirroring the grammatical structure of the original is actually not a high priority. The priority that I have is to make help this text speak to us in ways that can enable us to see both the surprising sophistication of Shantarakshita and Kamalashila just how much of the toolbox that contemporary analytic philosophers employ that they already have. And then once you see that, 
then you begin also to be able to see the absences, to be able to see what they don't have, which can be surprising and interesting as well. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, so with regard to one term that you translate as soul, uh, and maybe we can talk first about why you chose the term soul. I know there's different approaches to translating soul or self or these these, these questions around sort of personal identity. Um, but this is one of the, the, like you said, the core questions in this book is about personal identity, as we would put it today. Um, maybe you could talk to me a little bit about um, why you use the term soul uh, for, I take it this is for Atman in Sanskrit, um, and then what you think is at stake in this debate. We'll start there, and then we can talk about some of the interlocutors with the Buddhists. Yes. You're right. The underlying term is, of course, Atman. And I do not think that it is possible or desirable to translate Atman in the same way in every context in which it occurs. So the, the word is derived etymologically um, from a word that we think may have meant breath originally. But by the time we get any Indian philosophy, it means self. So the essence of who you really are. Um, that, that whose persistence through time constitutes your personal identity. Now, all of the opponents that are criticized in the chapters that I translate for this volume think that there is a permanent spiritual substance. Now, they disagree in various ways about how to characterize that substance. So for the Samkhya, for example, that substance is intrinsically conscious, whereas uh, for the Nyaya philosophers, it is not intrinsically conscious, but it's a substance in which qualities can inhere, and when mental states inhere in it, it is, in, it is conscious in virtue of that. So there, there are these subtle differences, but all of the opponents believe in a spiritual substance which remains the same over time. Perhaps in some respects it also changes, but it's numerically the same thing over time, and that's what your personal identity consists in. Uh, and that is a view that we find, of course, widely in world philosophy, but Buddhists don't accept it. Buddhists think that you are the same person at the conventional level. Uh, so we can say in terms of ordinary social practices that are efficacious in achieving various pragmatic goals that we have, that you are Malcolm and you're the same Malcolm that um, I exchanged emails with yesterday. Uh, but ultimately, there is no one single thing, according to Buddhists, in virtue of which you are the same Malcolm. Rather, there's a kind of resemblance between the version of Malcolm that uh, appears on my screen and the version of Malcolm that might have existed yesterday. And there are causal connections between the physical and psychological processes that manifest today and the ones that manifest yesterday. Ultimately, though, there is no Malcolm and no Charles Goodman and no anyone, right? People don't feature in the fundamental ontology of the Buddhist tradition. And so they confront various philosophical objections and various philosophical questions about how various phenomena such as memory and recognition and above all karma and reincarnation can be possible when ultimately there, there is no self. So were I translating a text in which Buddhists were critiquing the views of the Charvaka who hold a primitive form of physicalism, 
Well, the, the Travaka might say that the Atman, or self, is the body, and then soul would be an entirely inappropriate translation in that context. But for those philosophers who identify self and soul, I think it's clearer to describe what they're talking about as the soul. Uh, but when we're talking about the Buddhist position, I think you want to say that their doctrine is that there is no self. Were we to ascribe to them the view that there is no soul, if that's how we translate anatmavada, well, then we would be ascribing to them a view that they hold, but we would be describing to them as less radical than they actually are, because they're really trying to say, there is no such thing as who you really are. There is no such thing as the essence of a human being. A human being is something conventional. Yeah, so, so what you're pointing to here, I think, is interesting in terms of thinking about the relationship between translation and philosophy, because uh, I think people who work with translations in philosophical contexts appreciate that you're not you're not just basically porting over words from a, a dictionary that fits the sort of best context or the the grammar that you're doing something more but it sounds like you're describing translation practices in a sense as a kind of philosophy you're doing philosophy because you have to be thinking about the the dialectic the sort of uh, the argument context and things like that how, how do you think about the relationship between translation and philosophy in this way i think it's fairly close uh, take, for example, the word akara, uh, which means something like image or aspect. This word is very difficult to translate, and it's translated in a number of different ways. Um, and so I struggled with it. This was really the last major translation choice I made. Uh, but I encountered some very valuable work uh, by uh, Matt McKenzie, where he argues that in the relevant period, akara means phenomenal form. And that I found fit the text rather well. Okay, so for example, in some later works, it's plausible that we want to translate the word akara as representation. Okay, but consider the following argument. So the Samkhya, which is a, a, a non-Buddhist, very ancient form of Indian philosophy, which had a great deal of influence on such texts as the Bhagavad Gita. The Samkhya holds that there are three strands or gunas. These are called in Sanskrit sattva, rajas, and tamas. Okay, those are words that are very, very difficult to translate. Um, so, but sattva is seen as good, and it's conceptualized as white, um, and associated with calm and clarity and knowledge. And, and uh, then rajas is conceptualized as red and is associated with passion and pain and, and sort of intensity of experience and desire. And then tamas is seen as dark and is conceptualized as associated with ignorance and sloth and sleep and torpor. Okay. The Sankhya position is that not only the external world, but the internal world as well, are all manifestations of these three strands, except that there is also a witness, which is pure consciousness. The seer is pure seeing, says the Yoga Sutras, which observes these strands. So the first chapter, that I translate most of the first chapter, I leave out an introductory section which talks about the purposes of the work as a whole. The parts of the first chapter that I translate are a critique of Samkhya doctrine, and in particular of the idea of prime matter, which is conceptualized as the equilibrium state of these three strands. So 
in his critique, one of the arguments that Chantrakshita gives is that if some cognition does not have the phenomenal form of X, or it does not have the akara of X, then it does not represent X, it does not take X as its object. And the point of the argument is that when I look around me, I do not manifestly see the three strands, right? The, the idea of these um, fundamental characteristics, characteristics of existence, which are white, red, and black, and everything is made of them. That's not how my experience arises for me. It doesn't seem that way to me. And so what Chantrakshita wants to conclude is that my phenomenal consciousness does not represent the three strands. It's not about the three strands. If you translate akara as phenomenal form, you can reconstruct the argument the way that I just did. But if you translate it as representation, then the argument is circular, right? My cognitions don't represent the three strands because they don't represent the three strands. So here is a case where in order to arrive at the translation, I have to ask what reading of this very difficult word among those that are attested as occurring in other Indian texts, what reading makes the argument a good argument? Right. And then I look at various different contexts within the text and see what fits. So I could actually translate akara as phenomenal form in every occurrence that, that systematically worked. But there are other cases in which a charitable reconstruction of the argument requires us to translate differently in different contexts. I am quite impressed really with the uh, philosophical sophistication and insight of these authors. Not so impressed always with their ability to adopt a charitable reconstruction of their opponent's views. They never seem all that interested in learning from the other philosophies that they criticize. They really want to win the debate, uh, but they're very adept at winning the debate and at identifying cogent philosophical considerations that are gonna support their account and their critique. And so I think that a approach of interpretive charity is often going to be very fruitful. And it's going to be very fruitful specifically in the context of trying to identify the appropriate translations for particular terms. So what you just said about the, the sort of debate practices here leads me to another question, again, going back to this debate about the, the soul. So you you told you told us what the position of uh, the Buddhists, at least Shantarakshita and Kamalashila, are on the the Atman, the the self, the soul. Um, why do you think they need to engage with these other traditions? Why not just set out positively their own position? Why take the time to engage with the Mimamsakas, the Nayakas, and all these different um, different schools of thought? Why? Uh, what what benefits them in this text? To, to do that? What's the, the thinking behind that? So the Buddhist tradition has a complex and ambivalent relationship with debate. The Buddha, as he's represented in the Pali Canon, of course, we don't know whether these canonical texts, which are revered in Southeast Asia, accurately represent um, the historical Buddha or not. There's a great deal of room for debate about that and, and, and very little evidence that we can really uh, appeal to to arrive at a conclusive judgment. The texts represent the Buddha as holding that people who draw on his teaching primarily as a way of winning in debates are missing the point. He says they will not achieve the good for the sake of which they went forth from the home life into homelessness. 
And there's very much the idea in the polycanon that the combativeness of debate, the element of competitiveness is really antithetical to the spirit of gentleness and compassion that is central to the Buddhist tradition. On the other hand, in texts such as the Shorter Discourse to Sachika, we see the Buddha himself de defeating advocates of rival Indian philosophies in debate. And debate became more central to the tradition as it proceeded historically. Um, so uh, apparently at uh, the great monastery of Nalanda, which functioned apparently in some ways like a secular university, students who didn't adhere to the Buddhist tradition could come to Nalanda and receive instruction in subjects such as astronomy and medicine and linguistics from Buddhist monks who were the teachers. Right? So this institution had uh, four uh, monks faculty is how I think of them, who were appointed as gate guardians. And their job was to stand at the gate and debate anyone who showed up and wanted to have a debate with them. I am especially drawn to a particular passage from a text called the Training Anthology, um, which, as I mentioned, I translated as, as my second book, where uh, Shantideva quotes a Buddhist scripture that says, while remaining preeminently free from strife, to debate those, to defeat those opposed to the Dharma in debate is also upholding the Holy Dharma. I think that uh, that passage really expresses quite well the Buddhist tradition's ambivalence towards this activity. One of the things that we need to keep in mind about the context is that we have an atmosphere in most of India most of the time of de facto religious freedom. Uh, so this became very concrete for me. Uh, when I visited the rock temples at Elora and Ajanta in Maharashtra state, where we have Hindu sites, Jain sites, Buddhist sites, within easy walking distance each other from overlapping periods of history. Right? So these are traditions that were able to get along, uh, but that also had rather sharp philosophical disagreements. So sometimes they would call, him, call each other unkind names. Uh, the Digumbara tradition of Jainism, for example, practices a very strict form of austerity, uh, where they're not even allowed to wear clothes. And uh, Kamala Sheila calls them the shameless ones. Right? So you can call each other unkind names, but there's very much a sense of learning from each other and, and of participating in a common activity of, of intellectual exchange and of debate, which, while not always respectful, is peaceful. Then at the same time, Shantarakshan and Kamalashila are the inheritors of intellectual developments that occur, had occurred a couple of hundred years earlier that really transformed the landscape of Indian philosophy, where a common shared epistemological framework is worked out, within which, although people disagree about subtle points, they roughly agree on what counts as a good argument and what counts as an appropriate critique of an argument. And that's a framework which on the Buddhist side um, is worked out by two major philosophers, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, uh, very much in dialogue with and drawing on uh, the Nyaya and Mimansa traditions of Hindu philosophy. 
And so by the time we get to, to Shantaraksha, Shantaraksha is profoundly influenced by Dharmakirti. He takes on board uh, many aspects of Dharmakirti's epistemological system, and he frames his arguments in terms of those. So not only do we have a social practice of debate, one which would often involve religious professionals from different traditions appearing before kings and other high-status uh, secular elites to debate about their tenets, uh, but we also have a very considerable agree, degree of agreement about what the rules of the debate should be and about what the acceptable moves are. And Shantaraksha presupposes all of that in composing his poem. Yeah, so that was one of the things that that struck me in looking at the book was the emphasis on some of these uh, fallacies, these um, points of defeat, different, different sorts of technical terms, right? So I'm curious... Thinking about readers who are, um, say, maybe analytic philosophers and are, are familiar with this sort of um, formal, in some sense, or at least very structured way of uh, engaging in argumentation and analysis, are there any particular concepts that they employ in this kind of debate uh, practice that you think would really resonate with analytic philosophers, that people might be surprised that they had these in their toolkit, as, as you said earlier? Yes. So uh, w one essay that's included in the volume is about methods of reasoning in the Tattva Samgraha. And what I try to do in that essay is lay out how the Indian conception of a syllogism, then, which is somewhat different from an Aristotelian syllogism, um, then plays out through the text and how the different acceptable moves and the, the conception of fallacies, which they very much have an idea of lists of fallacies and of fallacious objections, um, how these are all structured in relation to that Indian conception of a syllogism. So the paradigm argument uh, is something like this. There is fire on the hill because there is smoke, like in the kitchen and perhaps unlike on the lake. So I observe that a certain property is instantiated in a particular place. I, I look at the hill, I see smoke. I know that where there's smoke, there's fire. That relation is called the pervasion. And then I infer that fire is instantiated in that location. So the pervasion, which corresponds to the major premise in an Aristotelian syllogism, is conceived of as a relation between properties. That where one of these properties is instantiated, the other one always will be. And of course, Indian philosophers confronted very difficult questions related to what we know as the problem of induction about how we could ever know that the pervasion obtained. Right? So that becomes thematized as a topic of debate. One thing that really surprised me, and it surprised me partly because of the strange way in which it's expressed, is that Shantarakshan and Kamalashila have this idea that if A is identical to B, then they have the same persistence conditions. And so if you can show that the persistence conditions of A and B are different extensionally, then you can show that A is not B. That struck me as a very sophisticated move. And weirdly, they use the Sanskrit compound, yoga kshema, which has a variety of different meanings, but, but not, I think, in any other text I've seen this meaning, um, to uh, convey that argument. Uh, so I'm uh, hoping to publish an article about that 
uh, very uh, specific usage. Uh, but it's an example of them being quite sophisticated. Another thing is that they are very aware of what we call Leibniz law. Although, of course, since these texts are earlier than Leibniz, perhaps Leibniz law is a misnomer. Uh, but uh, the texts skillfully use considerations about identity to refute particular views about what is identical to what. Um, and they insist on a very uh, strict interpretation of Leibniz law, where if A and B, if we can identify any way in which they're different, we conclude that they're distinct. I wonder if you could give us an example of that. There, I think there are a lot of, lot of examples, but is there any particular place where you can recall that being used in the, the metaphysical um, chapters here? Like the- yes. So there's one uh, occurrence of it that I think is especially interesting in terms of understanding the structure of their view. So Shantarakshana and Kamalashila hold that if we have, for example, a, a plant, so we're, we're talking about the example of a plant, and it grows from a seed into a sprout into a mature plant. They say there is nothing at all that remains strictly speaking the same. So if we're speaking at the pragmatic conventional level, we can say this plant is the same one that was that sprout and that grew from that seed. That's perfectly acceptable in ordinary discourse. But if we look more closely, we find that there ultimately is nothing at all that remains strictly the same between the seed and the sprout and the mature plant. Now, the Hindu philosopher Udyotakara, uh, he belongs to the Nyaya Vaisheshika tradition, he responds to this Buddhist view uh, and says, well, there are atoms, and the atoms are permanent. The atoms are neither created nor destroyed. And so some of the atoms that were in the seed are in the sprout, and some of the atoms that were in the sprout are in the plant. And so there is something that persists. And it's in virtue of that that we are able to say that this is the same. Now, Shantrakshan and Kamalashila respond that if these atoms leave one configuration and enter into a different configuration, then strictly speaking, they must be different. They're in a different place at a different time, right? That's a difference. They can't be the same identical atoms. Now, one of the things that I think follows from that argument is that they must believe in the spatio-temporal individuation of property particulars, tropes. That's their basic ontology, at least while they are speaking in terms of a physical world. One of the things that's interesting and, and a little bit frustrating about Chantrakshin and Kamalashila is that sometimes they base their argument on the idea that the physical world exists, and then at other times they speak in terms of an idealist perspective. So there's a kind of graduated teaching here where some of the time they debate in terms of the assumption that there's a physical world, and then at other times they debate uh, in terms of idealism, which they make it clear is actually a more advanced view from their point of view. It's closer to the truth to be an idealist than to think that there's a physical world. But to the extent that they're talking about the physical world, the things in the physical world are momentary. They last for no more than one moment of time, and they're spatio-temporally individuated. They, 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 you can't have two things at different places at different times that are numerically identical. Thank you. So we've been talking about the Buddhists in, in, in a sense as if the that uh Shantarekshita and Kamalashila sort of are the Buddhists, right? But um but as as you've alluded to, there are lots of other Buddhists preceding them and coming after them. Uh one of the sections in this book is a section where they engage with other Buddhists 
on questions of metaphysics. And I thought maybe that would be interesting to discuss the, um, the Vatsiputrius section, right? Um, what's going on there? Don't all Buddhists think there's no self? Uh, what's, what's the issue there? It's true that all Buddhists think that there is no Atman, the word that I would like to translate as self. And the rather radical view, the view that's reminiscent of Hume and Parfit uh, and reductionism is held by most Indian Buddhist philosophers. Uh, but we have this tradition, which from the point of view of people like Shantaraksha and earlier philosophers like Vasubandhu, deviated from the mainstream of Indian Buddhist philosophy. And this is a tradition called the Vatsipatriyas. They're also known as the Pudgalavadins or personalists, because what they advocate is that there's a real thing called the person or Pudgala. However, it is neither definitely identical with nor definitely distinct from the aggregates, the psychophysical processes that compose the empirical personality. So this is a view that some contemporary interpreters of Buddhism are attracted to. They think that actually maybe this is a better way uh, to get at the meaning of the Buddha's teaching than the more common reductionist perspective on personal identity. Uh, I'm more sympathetic uh, myself to the reductionist perspective. Um, but Shantarakshita's response is, I think, remarkably impressive because it's actually an instance of what we call the Evans-Salman argument against um, indeterminate identity. Right? So it goes like this. We have two kinds of psychophysical processes. We have, uh, say, for example, feeling tones, positive, negative, and neutral feeling tones. Uh, and then we have, uh, let's say, by contrast, visual perception. Okay. So feeling tones and visual perception are definitely distinct. Okay. As for the putgala, it is not definitely distinct from visual perception, unlike feeling tones. Therefore, feeling tones have a property that the putgala lacks, so the putgala and feeling tones are definitely distinct. Okay. That's the kind of really sharp argument uh, that anticipates some of the crown jewels of analytic epistemology uh, that you can expect to find by looking carefully at some of these late Indian Buddhist texts. So as people might pick up and, and read this book, just thinking about the kind of book it is, it's a, it's a compendium in a, in a sense, right? Um, do you think there's something to reading it front to back or is picking it up uh, and taking section at a time the way it, way it might have been used? Um, I don't know. How, how do you think uh, it's useful to engage with a text like this for modern readers? So the Tattva Samgraha, with its canonical commentary, is an immense work. At one point, I tried to calculate uh, how long it would take me to translate the entire thing, and it looked to me like it would take roughly the rest of my life. And it also has somewhat of a repetitive character. The same arguments are used against different opponents. That strongly suggests to me that it was intended to be used like an encyclopedia. So my um, suggested translation of, of Tattva Samgraha is Encyclopedia of Metaphysics. Um, and that's uh, a translation that's based on some suggestions to me by Jay Garfield, who's very good at coming up with translations. So I do think that 
the way that this text may originally have been used is you're, you're, you're going to have a conversation or a debate with a particular person who from a particular tradition, and then you read the relevant sections. So I do think that there's some benefit in reading the text front to back the way I've arranged it. You would get a really interesting introduction to the range of opinion in Indian philosophy, because I've uh, selected chapters in which the major traditions of non-Buddhist Indian philosophy, and as you said, one Buddhist lineage, uh, come in for critique. So we have arguments against Nyaya, um, Mimosa, Samkhya, um, and, Jaina, uh, and um, Jainism are, are all occur uh, within what I've translated. Uh, on the other hand, it is a disparate range of topics. So uh, I've, I've translated chapters that engage with the nature of matter, whether God exists, a uh, lot of material about the soul, about persistence, time and change, causation, and about a particular Jain view, uh, which I've rendered as perspectivalism, right? Uh, Syadvada, you might literally translate as the doctrine of it may be, it could be. Uh, so those are all issues that are that the text engages with. It can be a little bit slow going. The text is rather dense, um, and it's necessary to keep going back and forth to see how first they introduce the arguments of the opponent, and then they systematically go back and critique them one by one. So you have to be flipping back and forth a little. Uh, but I do think this is a text of very considerable philosophical interest and one that can be an extremely valuable corrective uh, to anyone who still holds the benighted view that it, there's no philosophy in India. Uh, because this extraordinarily technically proficient, highly sophisticated, abstract, dry material is paradigmatically philosophy. So as, as we think about the different viewpoints that are represented in the book. I wonder which of the arguments surveyed here, do you think that the Buddhists have the sort of the hardest time responding to you to, in your opinion? So obviously they get to win in all of the, the chapters, right? They, they point out uh, their opponent's flaws. And you've also pointed out that sometimes there's a a bit of uncharitability towards the representation of the opponent. So you can, they're not exactly all straw men, but they, they set them up in a way that they can demonstrate some, some flaws. Uh, but that said, what do you think they have the hardest time in terms of responding to? I, I think these are not exactly straw men. I think that Shantarakshita and Kamalashila try to represent as accurately as they can what the opponent will say. Because when you're going into a debate, you need to know what you're up against. <laughs> and, and that imposes a kind of intellectual discipline on the text, where if you try to present the argument in a way that is weaker than what it really will end up being, uh, then you'll end up being in trouble once you actually get to the debate court. So that's something that I find very valuable about the text. The way in which they're uncharitable is I think they, they never ask, what could we Buddhists learn from this other tradition of thought, right? What do they know that we don't? Uh, I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. To me, the God chapter feels rather inconclusive. So the opponent, the theistic opponents, raise arguments, some of which are bad, but the core argument is, to me, interestingly positioned between the argument from design and the cosmological argument. So the basic theistic argument, which is the main topic of the chapter, is that the opponent says, uh, the things that we observe, 
Some of them depend on a particular configuration of their own constituent parts in order to be what they are and do what they do. And how did they arrive at that configuration if there is no designer? Now, one of the moves that Shantarakshan and Kamalashila make is that they try to argue that there aren't ultimately any composite things. So why are you bothering us with this argument about how did the mountains get to be the shape that they are? How did cows' bodies get to be the shape that they are? We don't believe that there ultimately are mountains and cows' bodies. That, I think, is a very weak reply, because what the opponent should say back is, okay, if you believe that there are only momentary atoms arranged cow body-wise, arranged mountain-wise, how did they get to be so arranged? Okay. It turns out that the answer to that is that, according to the Buddhists, it was the collective karma of sentient beings that actually produced these arrangements. So there, the world is infinitely old. Uh, there have been these beings performing various actions. There's no time when the world begins. And as a result of the law of karma, which is accepted both by Hindus and by Buddhists, so we can, we can appeal to it. As a result of that, a world manifests within which these various actions can have their appropriate uh, condign consequences. Now, that leads to what I think is the most striking image in the text, claiming that it's the actions of all these sentient beings that have produced the world. Um, Shantaraksha says that the theist is like someone who infers that an anthill must have been made by a potter because it is composed of clay. So I do think there's something a, a kind of appealing about the Buddhist picture, but at the same time, it seems to me that the argument is rather inconclusive. Shantaraksha and Kamalashila do not have a satisfying reason to explain why the world is the way they claim it is, rather than the way that their theist opponents claim it is. And, and I think that people at the time may have perceived that debate as inconclusive at best for the Buddhists. Uh, we have historical accounts of debates in Central Asia uh, between Buddhists and Western-style monotheists, Christians, Muslims, which the Buddhists were judged to have lost because they didn't have a good argument, a good reply to the argument from design. Um, and so that here I think that a modernized form of Buddhist philosophy, which is something that, a project that is very interesting to me, uh, really is very dependent on uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, which for obvious reasons isn't available to Shantaraksha and Kamalashila. So uh, one more question here. We've talked a lot about sort of what we would characterize today as Hindu uh, and Buddhist debates, right? This is a, a common um, uh, sort of confrontation that people are thinking about in philosophy. But um, Jain or Jaina philosophers make an, a showing in this book as well. And interestingly, you pointed out that it was in, in Jain monasteries where some of these these um, manuscripts were preserved. Uh, maybe in, in the time we have left, could you tell us a little bit about what's at stake in the debate uh, between Jains and Buddhists? I mean, neither of them are uh, are sort of part of the Vedic uh, traditions, right? And so you might think that they're kind of natural allies in a sense. W what is the, the issue there? You're very right to point out that in certain key respects, Jainism and Buddhism are similar traditions in that they focus on um, celibate monastics who renounce the world, and they reject the authority of what eventually is deemed the mainstream of um, Indian religious tradition, the Vedas, and then the Upanishads, and then the um, later texts which fall from those, so that some traditional classifications 
would say that there are the orthodox schools of, in, of Indian philosophy, such as Mimosa, Samkhya, um, Vedanta, Nyaya Vasheshika. The members of these traditions who are engaged in debates with Buddhists and who are criticized by Shantrakshana Kamalashila, they didn't have available to them uh, the word Hindu. Um, but retrospectively, we would apply that word to them. And then the, the Jains and the Buddhists are outside of that context. To Shantrakshana Kamalashila, the Jains need to be criticized really uh, on two main grounds. First of all, they affirm a soul. Um, and they have a, a substantive conception of personal identity in the same way that um, the Hindus do. Indeed, from the perspective of Shantrakshana and Kamalashila, the Jain view of the soul is closely similar to that of the Mimansa philosopher Kumarla. And so they're criticized together. But the Buddhists also take issue with the closely related giant doctrines of perspectivalism and uh, non-absolutism. Um, so for from a giant point of view, nothing is ever absolutely one way or another. There's always one point of view from which it is and another point of view from which it isn't. So I think that that is an idea that resonates with some teachings in Buddhism. I think that if you were to look at East Asian Buddhism, uh, much of what the East Asian Buddhists are doing actually reflects a view not that different from um, uh, from Jain non-absolutism. But I think just because it has the label non-Buddhist on it, Shantarakshita feels the need to harshly criticize it. And he makes some good points. So the Jains, for example, um, bring up these examples of composite entities that combine different characteristics. So there's, an there's a discussion of onyx, which is a gemstone, which is mostly black, but has other colors within it. Uh, onyx is a gemstone that's very highly prized in Tibet, uh, actually. And then they talk about the man lion uh, or the lion man, Narasimha, who, who combines aspects of lion and man. And then the Buddhist response is, no, we don't need this perspectivalism to account for this. We could just say the lion man has some lion parts and some human parts. The onyx has some parts which are black, other parts which are white, other parts which are brown. Once we analyze these things in their parts, we don't need to say of any one thing that it is both A and not A. That would be a contradiction. And so I think that the arguments about this idea of non-absolutism, first of all, the, the Jains are emphatic that they accept the law of non-contradiction and that their ideas of perspectivalism and non-absolutism do not conflict with non-contradiction. So I think that the, the debate is helpful to illustrate both the slipperiness of the law of non-contradiction. What does it actually mean once you start introducing some of these um, ideas? And then also the grave difficulty of defending it if you're ever confronted with someone who doesn't accept it. Great, thank you. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered? I think that we've succeeded in bringing out some of the interest um, and value of this text. And I really very much hope that before coming to a, um, a hasty opinion about whether there really is philosophy in Asia, 
um, that analytic philosophers will, will take the time to acquaint themselves with some of these classics of um, the Indian tradition, which I think speak to many of their most central concerns in ways which, in some respects, that they may find quite interesting. Once you get past the initial difficulty of the very, very different uh, cultural context in terms of which these arguments are framed. Great. Well, um, I'm going to ask you a question that we we ask all of our, our guests, but I'm in a sort of unusual position of knowing the answer to this question ahead of time uh, because you and I are, are working uh, together on this project. But let me ask you, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I have a number of article projects. Uh, I've mentioned one of them. Um, I'm interested in questions about the interpretation of uh, Buddhist ethics, about the way in which repentance practices may cast light on uh, the odd fact that Buddhist ethicists don't seem to have a concept that exactly corresponds to our phrase moral obligation. So that's one thing I'm working on. Um, I'm interested in issues outside Indian philosophy, uh, such as in applied ethics. I'm interested in, in, in for example, in the question uh, of um, exclusionary zoning and how we can uh, produce a moral critique of that practice. But my main project uh, for the next couple of years, I expect to be um, a uh, volume um, for which we have the working title, Buddhist Philosophy and Its Critics, an Anthology of South Asian Sources. Um, and this will actually excerpt uh, some passages from the book we've been talking about, but it will go far beyond that. It will include uh, translations of a number of sources that bring out the uh, the non-Buddhist philosophers who criticized Buddhism. So the, the different chapters, there'll be chapters on um, personal identity, on causation, on epistemology, on the problem of universals and other topics, um, and show the way in which Buddhist philosophers developed their views in response to critiques and how they responded to uh, other Indian thinkers who, who criticized their work. So I hope that that text will be suitable to use uh, either in its entirety or excerpting particular passages in particular sections um, in, uh, in university courses. Great. Um, well, I appreciate uh, your time, Charles. And um, for folks who are interested in the book, we'll as always have it, a link on the, the podcast for folks to, to take a look at. Uh, thanks for your time. And I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on.